The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful opportunity to be here at IBCD. I thank you for the Neuheisers and their ministry and Craig and Tom and just everybody else that's here uh, that puts together this conference. I'm so blessed by you, and I thank you for the privilege of of being here. Thank you for people that have traveled from so far away to be here and those close by. But again, I thank you that uh, they care about people and want to help people. And we need uh, thousands more like them. And I pray that you would uh, just continue to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, may this day accomplish your purposes. And Lord, in particular for this session, uh, these two sessions about marrying wisely. Uh, we uh, are feeling very challenged in our culture and there are um, just so many issues going on. Uh, help us to prepare our young people to make a wise choice of a spouse. Plus I pray for the young people, uh, for the singles, college students uh, that are so intimidated even by the thought of marriage that they even wonder if it's possible to have a happy marriage, uh, that they would have confidence uh, that your principles really do work. Um, help us as those who have been walking with you for a long time to model uh, before uh, the generation behind us that uh, marriage can work uh, if it's done your way. Uh, thank you for my marriage. Thank you for the children you've blessed me with and I ask your blessing on them and all their various activities today. Uh, we love you, thankful for the gospel and its transforming power, and may that even be evident in this, these sessions. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is part of two uh, seminars back-to-back, -back, so it's Mary, Mary Wisely, Mary Well, part one and part two. And uh, this was actually my doctoral dissertation when I went to Westminster Seminary. So... Uh, I've been blessed of the Lord to work with college students almost my whole pastoral ministry. So even before I was a college professor, uh, I was a college and career pastor in Pennsylvania on staff of a large church. And then when the church that you heard about uh, in the morning session at that church, we also started a college ministry. And then uh, 14 years I worked in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is the home of Virginia Tech. So our church building was three blocks from the Virginia Tech campus, and uh, we had anywhere from 70 to 100 college students would come to our church regularly. So these type of questions that we're going to be talking about, and this theme is something that has just been part of my life for decades. Plus, uh, this is the real reason. Um, I have six children. So the Lord has blessed Rose and me with Rebecca and Joshua and Jonathan and Joel and Elizabeth and Joy. And this, uh, our family hasn't been together for a year and a half now, so we're outdated here. Uh, but these guys have another one. I was just on the East Coast to welcome Ezekiel, so they now have Zeke. And uh, this one, these two live in New Hampshire. He's a pastor in New Hampshire and uh, they have cadence now and uh, we just welcome we had two grandchildren within a week so here on the west coast we had joel and jessica gave birth to bria which is a hebrew name um, 
me, her name is Bria Sameach. Uh, it means joyful beginnings in Hebrew. And so that's Joel and Jess. He's a student at the Master's Seminary. And uh, these two are adopting from Ethiopia. And just this topic this morning is as rele relevant as yesterday morning I was having a conversation with the young man pursuing her. So um, she is being courted right now and by a godly young man. So uh, that's the real reason why I wrote and uh, done a lot of research on this topic. Uh, we're obviously not doing something right uh, when we have divorce statistics still at 40 to 50 percent in the United States. Plus let me read you some statements from college students that I've accumulated over the years. I believe there's a lot of fear about marriage uh, in culture right now. Uh, for example, uh, this is a statement a student gave me one time, finding the right person that you know you can grow old with and love forever no matter what just seems impossible. Uh, that seems pretty typical to me. Every year I teach marriage and family at the Master's College and I ask them, the very first class, to um, write out for me their fears related to marriage. And uh, that's the reason I do that is so that I can custom design the class for my particular group of students. Even though I have set material that I want to go through with every class, I want to find out what the fears and concerns are of that particular group of 40 or 50 students. But there's themes that I keep hearing, and these are very common. I picked out the ones that are common. So when I ask them the question, uh, what are your concerns or fears about marriage, I hear these things regularly. Every, I teach that class uh, both in the fall and spring. So these are common statements from college students. <clears throat> what if I marry the wrong one? What if I wake up one day and realize I don't love this person any longer? What if he turns out to be a big weirdo? Um, <laughs> I guarantee to them, I try to give them a reality dose uh, that uh, you got to love somebody in spite, not only for who they are, but in spite of who they are. And I can guarantee to you he's a bigger weirdo than you even realize. Um, <clears throat> this is a very common one. Will I ever get married? We know that things are radically changing in American culture right now. I mean, even aside from the whole homosexual thing and how we're defining marriage now. Um, I mean, that's just a huge topic in and of itself of how marriage is being redefined. But even before that, there is loads of research going on, on uh, into how Americans are changing their perspective on marriage. Uh, just to give you one statistic, uh, did you know that over 50% of children now are born to single moms for ages 30 and younger. That is a huge change in the United States. Uh, I follow a report every year. I'm, I'm not only geeky about the Bible, but I'm geeky about studying marriage trends. And I wait for a report every year called the National Marriage Project. And it comes out of UVA. And I was just reading some of it on the plane uh, last night as I was flying <clears throat> uh, this direction from the Midwest. And uh, just all kinds of research going on and changing attitudes and trends in the United States. But this captures pretty well. I picked out a paragraph. I got this one from an, the National Marriage Project uh, a few years ago. I think it was from the 2010 report. They, and they do this every year. So UVA 
is studying marriage attitudes and trends of every age group, but they especially focus in on teens and college students, or singles, I should say, and their attitudes about marriage so that we can get a projection of what's going to be happening in the future in the United States. So this is what they wrote about American attitudes toward marriage. <clears throat> As an adult stage in the life course, marriage is shrinking. Americans are living longer, but marrying later, exiting marriage more quickly, and choosing to live together before marriage. So let's press pause for a moment and think about that. Since 1962, there's been a 1,000% increase in cohabitation uh, in the United States. And it makes sense <clears throat> when you think about it. The divorce rate in uh, the early 1900s, like right at the turn of the century, 1902, 1903, just Give a wild guess what the divorce rate was in the United States in 1902. 2%. 2%. <laughs> so here we are now. Uh, I was reading yesterday that the statistics are uh, for first-time marriages. So if you put people in that have been divorced before, it really messes with the statistics. So I'll give you that one in a moment. But first-time marriages were still hovering around 40 to 50 it jumps above 50%. Those who have been divorced, have a divorce in their background, have a higher chance of getting divorced again. Um, <clears throat> let me continue my quote, and then I'll give you some more statistics. So choosing to live together before marriage, after marriage, and in between marriages, and as an alternative to marriage. A small but growing percentage of American adults will never marriage. So as a, con marry. as a consequence, marriage is surrounded by longer peri periods of partnered or unpartnered singlehood over the course of a lifetime. Uh, so this whole question of how do we get people together in a godly way so that we can see marriage stabilized and so that the church can really picture to culture. Here's, here's part of the burden of my heart is that I believe God's ways work. I believe the principles of Scripture work, and that <clears throat> we can give confidence to the younger generation that if they will do this right, they don't have to be a statistic. I keep trying to pound that into my students and give them confidence. You do not have to be a divorce statistic, because many of them came from families where they saw a failed marriage, or they, even if their parents didn't divorce, they know that their parents are miserable. They were not happily married. And <clears throat> I, every semester, virtually every semester, did. when I first started at Masters 10 years ago, it was not every semester, but now virtually every semester, I have students who come to me asking how to counsel their parents. And that's a very difficult situation for them to be in as they're in this awkward position of now their mom and dad find out they're in a counseling class and then their parents are complaining about wife or husband to their children and that just breaks my heart a child should not be in that a 20 year old should not be in that situation of having to try to stabilize their parents marriage um, and I could go off on that one but I'll resist the temptation of what I how I deal with that uh, with students just trying to set this up of why we need this topic we need to give young people confidence that they can have stable marriages. You can make a wise choice. You do not have to be a statistic. But if 
<clears throat> I just think it can boil down to as simple of a principle as sowing and reaping. What you sow is what you're going to reap. Obviously, the way that we're going about getting people together is not working because we're ending up with a 40 to 50 percent divorce rate. So we're doing something wrong in the way we're getting people uh, together. So that's really what this seminar is about, is how do we get people together in a godly way that um, gives them confidence um, and hope that they don't have to be a statistic. And I call it marry wisely, marry well. As you know, there are <clears throat> so many methods that are being promoted. Uh, just name some for me so that this is uh, more interactive than me just lecturing. But what are some methodologies that get promoted? Courtship. Courtship. Dating. So dating, even different versions of dating. So there might be just casual dating to more, some people call it biblical dating. If you've read some of the literature, there's just so many things out there. So we have courtship dating, some would say biblical dating. What are some others? Online. I was say Online, so we got the whole eHarmony yeah. thing going on. What else? We already mentioned cohabitation, so we have people checking it out ahead of time. You know, uh, the attitude is, well, you try out a used car, so you try out a car before you buy it, so I'm going to try out this person to see if we can actually make the commitment. I tell my students, you got to tell your friends that are cohabiting, there is somewhere this, the research still being done, but those who cohabit have an act, actually have a 50 to 75% higher divorce rate than those who do not cohabit. And it makes sense once you start reading the literature as to why that's happening. It's because you have built right into the relationship lack of commitment. If yeah. this doesn't work, well, then we'll we break it off. So it didn't surprise me at all to read that in the secular literature. That, uh, so I think we need to warn young people. It, it, I totally get why they want to do it. Uh, I mean, aside from the violation of many different biblical principles, I get why it is so popular because there, we, we're made for relationship. God made us to be in relationship. So we're going to hunger for being in relationship with people. It's just part of our design as humans. Um, but traditional marriage is not working. So therefore, people say, let's live together ahead of time. And you get, supposedly, you get the benefits of a romantic relationship without all of the, the commitments. Uh, but it's just not working as a, as a methodology. So there's all kinds of methodologies. You're not going to hear me in these two sessions promote courtship, dating, biblical dating. You definitely won't hear me promote cohabitation. Um, <clears throat> because I don't believe Scripture pushes any one methodology. What you're going to hear me promote is wisdom. And so if you go to India, for example, they don't do dating in India. So what do Christian couples do that are in India? Well, they practice betrothal in India. So whatever my principle would be this, whatever the culture promotes that's within biblical parameters, you practice it in a wise way. So you, if you're in India, you better, it's not just 
well, I'm going to marry you into that family because he's going to be a doctor. Well, that doesn't sound like necessarily biblical wisdom. Uh, whatever the methodology is of the culture, you practice it in a wise way. So a lot of what I have been promoting or trying to promote is what is biblical wisdom and how does it apply to then making choices of a person. Uh, sowing and reaping. What you're going to sow, what you sow, is what you're going to reap. So part of your notes, I haven't looked at the outline, but I, you have a whole list of biblical principles, principles for marrying well, marrying wisely and well. And these are the types of things I try to get people to be thinking, but I especially want to emphasize the whole area of attraction and I'm especially intrigued by what is attraction biblically. Uh, what, what in the world is going on with this whole subject of attraction? So rather than me jumping ahead, let me uh, start into the presentation and what I have used as a framework is the idea of building a house. and. Why don't we go ahead and uh, turn to this passage, and we'll, we'll talk about it, and then we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 2. So the numbers underneath point A. I grew up doing construction. Uh, my father, who was a pastor, also did a lot of construction. And so building's kind of in my blood. So I'm intrigued by this analogy that Scripture uses of talking about marriage as a house. So... There are so many different passages that talk about this, like Joshua 24. And I know you know the passage. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So throughout Scripture, marriage is talked about as a home. So as I've been thinking about this, uh, how does this relate to making uh, wise choices of the person you're going to marry? Um, it seems like it would be wise to get people to start thinking earlier about their house rather than their future marriage house, rather than we got married and, okay, now we're building a marriage house. Why don't we start when our children, our teens, when they're teens, rather than they're in college, and now we're going to start talking to them about marriage. Let's start talking when they're teenagers or even our children, about what are the foundational issues. So a house has to have a foundation. What are the foundational issues we should be building into our teens' lives so that the foundation is more secure, so that when they get to the age of when they're, it's more appropriate for them to be in a relationship with the opposite sex, the foundation is more securely laid for them to actually make wise choices instead of choices based upon all kinds of things. Now, brainstorm with me uh, just for a moment here. What are some of the ways people choose the other person? What, a, what influences? Say that again. Attraction. So attraction. And what attracts people? Similar, in, well, obviously, first of all, probably physical. Okay. And then interest. Yeah. So the physical. And if people are just attracted by the physical does it necessarily lead to stable relationships? So I, I joke with my college students, and we'll get to this when we get to it, the idea of attraction here in a few minutes, but uh, Eve was obviously attracted to something, right? 
the fruit was a delight to her eyes. So I joke with my students and tell them, just because something's a delight to your eyes does not necessarily mean it's good for you. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of things not being, that are not good for us, that are a delight to our eyes. So that's why I'm really focused in on this subject of attraction, of why are, why are you attracted to that person? And I want to get the young person to really be thinking about why. It, it's, it's just chemistry. You know, we feel right together. Um, let's, those type of things aren't working. We're, we're ending up with a higher divorce rate. We've got to get our young people thinking more deeply about things like attraction. Um, those are some of the foundational issues. As I look at this verse, I just find it so intriguing. And let's get some confidence right off the bat here. Notice what Proverbs... So you know what the Proverbs are, right? Proverbs are, generally speaking, this is the way life works. That if you do this, sowing and reaping is all through Proverbs. If you do life this way, this is what, generally speaking, you can expect. So isn't this a wonderful confidence-giving verse for young people? That you want to build a house wisely, build it by wisdom, and if you build it by wisdom, verses, verse 3 and 4 say, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. If you build a house by wisdom, it can have a firm foundation. That word established is the same Hebrew word as firm. You don't have to worry about being a divorce statistic, sowing, reaping. If I invest this, this is generally speaking, I can expect to get this. So if you build a house wisely, just another word for wisdom, understanding. If by understanding, being, it's like making choices between, uh, the Hebrew word for being is discernment. So do our young people need discernment? <laughs> with uh, what's going on with marriage, obviously they need discernment. So discernment between, it's not just good and bad, but discernment in the book of Proverbs is good, better, best. So how do I make a choice of people that I'm going to spend my life with? Um, it's not just good, evil. It is that in the book of Proverbs. Like my son, stay away from those type of women. You know, that type of woman, son, tears her house down. But this type of woman builds her house up, Proverbs says. So I want to teach my boys, how do you make a wise choice of a woman who's going to build her house up rather than tear her house down? That's discernment, and that if I use wisdom and discernment, the home can be firm. It can be established. It has a good foundation. And then the home can be full of knowledge. Uh, by knowledge, the rooms are filled with beautiful, things, precious and pleasant riches. Uh, you don't have to be a divorce statistic. Look, turn with me back to Proverbs chapter 2. That raises, and this is number 2, so Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, the first one, and then Proverbs 2, wish we had time to really go through the whole chapter because the whole chapter is relevant. What is this wisdom then? How do you get wisdom? And <clears throat> I'll come. 
back to that in just a moment. <clears throat> Colossians 2, that's going to be my third passage. But number two is Proverbs chapter 2. If this wisdom is so important, how do you get wisdom? So let me read some of the verses. And this is stereotypical Proverbs. First part of the chapter, sowing. Second part of the chapter, reaping. So if you do what the first part of the chapter says, you get what the second part of the chapter says. So my son, if you will receive my saying. So it's a father to a son. If you receive my sayings, what does it mean to receive the sayings? Next line, treasure my commandments. So that's how you know if someone's receiving what you're saying. Do they value it? Treasure my sayings. Make your ear attentive to wisdom, so they're listening, if you incline your heart to understanding, if you cry out for discernment. So getting this wisdom and discernment takes work, but it's worth it. So I tell people it's like digging for gold, and there's many exhausting moments, and you go, why am I doing this? But then you strike it rich, and you've probably had moments like that in studying the Bible on your own, right? You go, wow, this is hard work. I study, I study, I study, and you go, wow, Eureka, this is amazing. The wisdom I'm getting from Scripture, that was worth all that effort to put into the intense study or the intense work of applying Scripture. If you will cry out, if you will listen, lift your voice, Lord, please teach me. I remember at age 17, I had made so many stupid decisions as a teenager. And I remember at age 17 crying out, Lord, I am so tired of being stupid. Would you please help me learn wisdom? And, you know, Lord, crying out for discernment. Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, so there's the gold mining, treasure hunting analogy. Are you willing to put the work into finding wisdom? And search for her as hidden treasure. Now here's the switch. Then, so if you do this, then you get this. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. You get the Lord first. You, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So foundational issues. So I'm building a house. And so I actually have a diagram that goes with this. I'm building a house. By wisdom, a house is built. I want to teach people, young people, start building your future marriage house, even if another person's not in the picture yet. What are the issues you should be working on in your life that makes you more marriageable? What are the things in your life, instead of i got to find somebody that matches me, how about I become more marriageable for another person? So what are the things I need to be working on, even if I'm not in a relationship? Another thing I try to remind college students of is just because you say I do at the altar doesn't make you a different person the day after your <laughs> wedding. So start working on communication principles now with your roommates, with your parents. Start working on conflict resolution principles now. Don't wait for that magic moment and you said your vows and now you're a marriageable person because you are actually married. Um, no, when you're a teenager, let's be teaching our teenagers communication principles. Let's be teaching our teenagers conflict resolution principles so that when they are getting to this stage of more serious relationships, they already know how to work through issues with people rather than just hoping it magically happens. Um, 
once they said I do. One of the things I found as a pastor, I've done premarital counseling with lots and lots of couples. You can imagine if you're a pastor three blocks from a major university, um, I did a lot of premarital counseling and every spring I would have anywhere from four to, I think one year I was doing seven couples at one time, um, or seven couples, not at one time, but seven individual couples I was doing premarital counseling with. And one thing I found through the years in premarital counseling is often premarital counseling can be about the pastor says we have to do this, so we're going to do it so that we can get to, so he'll be comfortable doing the wedding. And that was another motivation for me of doing this research and actually doing some writing on it was I've got to catch people even before they're, while they're in this stage of what you might call pre-engagement counseling, not just pre-marital, but getting them even before they've actually made the commitment to be thinking about, is this person actually a wise choice? Uh, because once they make the commitment and they start doing premarital counseling, marriage counseling can be, or premarital counseling can become just the thing you do to get you to the wedding. Uh, some are very sincere about it. Maybe you are hearing a little bit of cynicism from a pastor here, um, but I do know from experience that often it was I do my homework because the pastor says I need to do my homework. Um, I really want to be discipling people to young people to lay a good foundation so that when you get to this place of actually making a choice of a person, you're attracted to the right people and the right type of people are attracted to you. Uh, we've, you know, we've worked a lot on modesty issues with our girls and uh, one of the reasons we tell them that is we say, well, what type of guy do you want to be attracted to you? You are going. You dress a certain way. You are going to attract a certain type of guy. So, uh, but the right type of guy is going to appreciate that you're modest, and you're going to attract the right type of guy, if if you're concerned about those things. So, foundational issues. What are the foundational issues? Well, Christ has to be at the foundation. So you work on wisdom, and as I just mentioned. You work on crying out for wisdom. You're willing to do the work of getting wisdom. And then what do you get? The first thing you get is verse 5. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. You get the Lord. So basic issue I've got to work on with a young person is what's your relationship to the Lord? You know, are you first of all in life committed to Christ as the foundation of your life? Uh, the way I like to say it is your relationship with Christ is the source from which all else flows. Your relationship with Christ is the source from which all else flows. Otherwise, here's what happens, and you know it as well as I do because I'm prone to it just like you are, that we can make another person our rock and our fortress rather than the Lord. And you get this other per I need, I need a romantic relationship. You know, the teenage girl, I have to have a guy love me. I have to have a be in a relationship with a guy, and a guy can be the same way, and they put this person up on the pedestal of what they need this other person to be for them, and can that person ever be all that for them? Because they're not designed to be God in their life. So why do relationships fail? Because we are turning relationships into God-like status. How do we know that in our culture? What's a term that our culture uses to describe this romantic relationships? Okay, codependency, but I'm thinking of a romantic term. We're looking for soulmate. our soulmate. Uh, 
Now think about the implications of that just for a moment. Can you become soulmates? Absolutely. But you're not going to find your soulmate. You're marrying a Genesis 3 person. <laughs> I mean, there is no perfect person in the world. It just, you can't, there's so many, I call it the princess bride mentality. You know, you're going to find your perfect princess and you find out you married the wicked witch of the West. Um, or you're looking for your knight in shining armor and you find out he's got a lot of kinks in his armor. Or he, like uh, White Christmas, he, he falls off the white horse. Um, so um, just a realistic view of relationships, Christ has to be first. He, that has to be the foundation. So I have in your notes this, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, romantic relationships. And don't let me forget to come back to the soulmate statement in just a moment. Uh, Harvard University, 1636. You can actually read this on the gates of Harvard still. I don't know why they haven't removed it, but on the old gate of Harvard it is still there. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let every, everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to seek it of him. That's what I want to teach teenagers and college students to do. Christ has to be the foundation, otherwise you're going to have a tendency to put a person in the place of the Lord because we are, uh, you know, we just look for, in relationships, we look for meaning, purpose, stability, security, etc. And no other human can deliver that other than Jesus Christ. Any other human is going to fail you. Um, and we all have that tendency uh, to, I need this I need my wife to be, or I need my husband to be. And that's all embedded in this whole soulmate idea. Like uh, Anna Green Gables, I am going to find my kindred spirit. And uh, our young people need a reality check of there ain't no such person. You're marrying a Genesis 3 person. Um, this same report, the National Marriage Project, back in 2005, they reported, I was so intrigued by this, they reported that what they were sensing in Americans was Americans looking for, and this is an exact quote, Americans are looking for a spiritualized union of souls. This is a secular report. So secular researchers said that what they were sensing in Americans is we're looking for in our spouse a spiritualized union of souls, a soulmate. I'm looking for. We're we're putting we're putting more on the relationship than what it can handle, because we live in a Genesis three world. So, I hear it regularly in marriage counseling. Even if they don't use the word, it comes out. He's not meeting my expectations, <laughs> or she doesn't meet my expectations. Well, they can't. They're a Genesis three person just like you. So all part of the foundation is Christ has to be your rock, your fortress. Where are you spiritually? You're not in a good position to make a choice of someone else until this piece is, I would say, at least well on its way to being in, in place. And then you might say, 
well, is that possible for a 17-year-old or a 20-year-old? And I think absolutely it is. If somebody is discipling that person and warning them about why do you have to have Christ, who is Christ in your life, I, I'm blessed to be around the college students uh, that I am. They take their walks with the Lord seriously, and I can almost guarantee to you they're going to make better choices of a spouse if they have that peace in place. And they have a, real, a realistic view of what are relationships. I can't expect another human being to be my rock and fortress, my security, my deliverer. Is Rose a rock in my life? Absolutely. Is she the rock in my life? Can't be the rock in my life. My wife fails me, I fail her. And um, that's just the reality of living in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 3 body. Praise God for progressive sanctification. We're both still growing and trying and trying to love each other. Um, and doesn't that give a more realistic view of relationships then too? Uh, instead of Princess Bride mentality. Then secondly, I want to help young people. On, uh, Colossians 2, we won't, that was point number three there underneath the first point. Let me just go back to it. Christ is, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if I want wisdom and knowledge, i got to invest in Christ. Now, <clears throat> before I move on, let me finish with Proverbs 2. And then I'll go on to point B, God's purposes for marriage. We won't go to all the passages, but you'll see there are a lot of sub-points uh, underneath each one of these main points. Um, back in Proverbs 2. So we've made the transition from the if to the then, so that if you'll dig in, cry out for wisdom, seek wisdom, I won't take the time to develop this, but I believe this is the primary source of wisdom. God's Word is like the fountain of wisdom. It's the living Word of God. You can see that in Psalm 119, that the writer talks about where he gets his wisdom. He gets it from the Word of God. So the Lord gives this wisdom. And then, how do you define wisdom? Look at verse 6. This is... Uh, an intriguing thing to think about. Scripture talks a lot about wisdom. Well, how in the world do you define wisdom? Look at verse 6. Here it is. For the Lord gives wisdom. So he's about to tell us what this wisdom is. There's a structure in Hebrew called parallelism. So the second line defines the first line. So, verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So what is wisdom? knowledge and understanding. So I think of it as a formula. Wisdom is having the facts, there's knowledge, but then it's having discernment of how do I use that information. Now I pastored around a lot of college professors, a lot of very, very smart people. Virginia Tech is known for engineering, so a lot of engineering professors, and I've done a lot of counseling with college professors. I can tell you that there are highly intelligent people in the world that are not wise. So I saw marriages fall apart. I saw them earn a big professor. They might be a chaired professor and have horrible people skills. They might be an engineering prof, full professor, not assistant professor anymore or associate professor, but full professor, tenured and their marriage is falling apart and they've made stupid financial decisions living beyond their means. So being smart is not wisdom. 
Just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you're a wise person. According to Scripture, wisdom is knowledge plus discernment. So I think that fits perfectly with what we're talking about is I want to teach young people how to gather facts, get information, and then discern. Okay, what's the, for example, as you'll see here in this chapter in just a moment, what's the trajectory of this person's life? Like uh, Proverbs talks quite a bit about there's a way that seems right unto a man, but it leads to death. So what is the trajectory? So, daughter, what's the track record of this young man? Um, what does he, where does he seem to be headed in his life? So I'm gathering information and then trying to make a wise decision based upon the information that I've gathered. And you go, okay, where's the romance in that? <laughs> you know, that seems to take the romance out of it. That takes the feeling and the hormones out of it. Um, and I would say there's going to be plenty of time for romance in your marriage and you're going to have a lot better romance and more uh, meaningful, realistic romance and deep love for one another if you make a wise cho choice uh, first. What you sow, if you base foundation, if you base your relationship upon feeling and hormones and chemistry, expect that's what you're going to reap, sowing and reaping. Once the chemistry is gone and the feelings are gone, you know, someday that person you're marrying is going to get old and fat. <laughs> and there better be more than just physical attraction and chemistry, uh, right? I mean, just the realism, I'm, I'm, work, I'm working on uh, my upper 50s, now, or mid, mid to upper 50s now. Um, my body is not in the shape it was when I was attracted to Rose to, to begin with the first time. And the same for her with me. So there's got to be more than just physical attraction. It's wisdom. Knowledge plus understanding leads to wisdom. Now notice what is mentioned here. If you'll do this, young person, because he's talking to his son. So he says... 10, verse 10, wisdom will enter your heart, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul, discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you, and what's it, what will it help you with? This is so perfect. It'll deliver you from the way of evil and from the man who speaks perverse things. Do our young ladies need to hear that? So, daughter, if you'll work on wisdom and keep Christ as the foundation, and remember that from Him, He's the source from which all else flows, and you cry out for wisdom, the Lord will give you wisdom to deliver you from men who speak perverse things and from those who would leave the paths of righteousness and walk in the ways of darkness and who delight in doing evil. And then there's a promise for young men as well. Verse 16, young men, verse 16, if you'll cry out for this wisdom, you can have wisdom to deliver you from the strange woman, that's the adulterous woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words that would leave the companion of her youth and forget the covenant of her God. So he's talking to his son, telling him, son, if you'll learn this wisdom, it'll teach you wisdom how to stay away from the wrong type of, of women. So this passage is just actually perfect for teaching young people of how do you make a choice 
for the future. Learn wisdom. And then the Lord's promising that if you learn this knowledge plus understanding, He'll give you the wisdom to know how to make the right choices of relationships. Is it hard work? Yes. Really hard work? Yes. Is it worth it? You better believe it, because it is better to put the work into making a choice now, a wise choice now, rather than get married and you go, what in the world did I do? Uh, Benjamin Franklin supposedly said, before marriage, keep your eyes wide open. After marriage, keep them half closed. Um, a lot of wisdom in that statement. I'm trying to teach young people, wide open eyes. What's the pathway of this person? Where are they headed in life? What's their walk with the Lord? Uh, foundational type issues. Another foundational issue, this is totally miscombobulated in our culture right now. What is marriage about? God's purposes for marriage. So I go, and you can write in your notes, even though we won't look at it, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2 even on this subject of homosexuality and what did God intend for marriage and how do we define marriage? Genesis, the word Genesis means beginnings. So we're reading the foundations. In Genesis 1 and 2, God tells us what he intended. And in Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2, there are all kinds of things that God says that marriage are about. So we're created to reflect God. How can my marriage, we're image bearers, how can my marriage bring glory to God? So that leads me to some questions to teach young people like, can you better reflect glory to God with this person together than you could apart? So are you a better team for the glory of God than you would be individually? Genesis 2 teaches us marriage. It's not good for man to be alone. It's to be about close companionship. It's about roles. There are roles for a husband. There are roles for a wife. They begin to get defined in Genesis chapter 2, and they're further defined, as you see up here in Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3. I have some more for you in just a moment, but just think about this where we are with our culture. Does our culture honor any of that? I mean, even this one, there's a different idea of what this companionship is supposed to be about. It's not about serving one another. It's about how do I get you to meet my needs. It's not about I'm going to love you and serve you whether you meet my needs or not. It's not agape love. It's about I want to uh, see how I can get you to scratch my back and meet my my needs. Um, our culture is really confused. I mean, we're really confused there. We've totally forgotten that one. So here's the point. If God is, and think of house building again as an analogy, God is the grand designer of the universe. So he designed, you look at a leaf, you see design. You look at animals, you see design. Guess what? He designed relationships to function in a certain way as well. If we follow the engineer's plan, the architect draws a plan. He says, do it this way. You get a more stable house. What's our culture doing? I don't like that plan. I'm not going to follow the architect's, architect's blueprints. I'm going to build a house my own way. And we're, seeing this we're getting the statistical results of forgetting the architect's plan. So the architect gave us a design, 
right in Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. Here's how I've designed things to function. What you sow is what you're going to reap. What else do we see in Genesis 1 and 2? Children are part of this. What are children a purpose for? Children are a blessing from the Lord. We're passing down to the next generation God worshipers. So we want to bring God worshipers into the world, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Um, and you start to get the hints of Christ in the church, the whole covenant idea there in Genesis chapter 2. There's one flesh being cut. And then Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that even if Moses didn't understand everything that he was writing about, he says, now I'm telling you what this mystery was. It was Christ and the church. There's so much more detail I, that we could go into here. And there's even probably more purposes for marriage. I want to teach young people, get the design down. This is what God intended marriage to be about. So is this person you're attracted to, do they have the same view? Are they... Do they have this high view of God? Do they have a proper understanding of husband and wife roles? Do they see how your marriage is a picture of Christ in the church? Um, obviously, you go, wow, this is pretty serious marriage preparation. We need serious marriage preparation. We are not doing it right. We have a 40 to 50% divorce rate, and this whole chemical princess bride thing it's just not working it's causing a lot of misery in in people's lives so wisdom is telling us wisdom would tell us hey something's broken <laughs> we got to do something different to get our young people to be making wise choices rather than just going on a whim and i'm attracted to this person and i think they're a christian i hope they're a christian um you know, what's the fruit in this person's life? Is this person really a follower of Christ? <clears throat> then, probably, so I've already asked this, um, some just key principles. I have even more on that extra sheet. Um, I like this principle right here. Christ is the foundation who should you be attracted to? Well, run hard after Christ and look around and see who's running with you. That's the kind of person you should be attracted to. Now, let's do the third one. And then I'm going to, we'll have about, uh, we'll have a few minutes left. And I want to see what kind of questions you have uh, in your mind up to this point. Um, the run hard after Christ. Uh -oh. Yeah, run hard after Christ and look around and see who's running with you. That's the kind of person you need to be attracted to. Like this young man that's pursuing my daughter. Just yesterday morning before I left, um, I was in Michigan yesterday for our annual family reunion. and <clears throat> So I was he came to our family reunion this year. And so I was talking to him about things like leadership and, you know, my daughter has seen an example in me of, of a man, uh, by the grace of God, who has taken leadership seriously in his home. Well, is it would be hard for my daughter to be married to a guy who's weak in leadership. Um, so I was just challenging him. Again, he and I have had this talk twice about you know, what does it mean to be a leader, what's it going to be mean to be a leader for my daughter, uh, etc., uh, so run hard after Christ and look around and see who's running with you. Now, <clears throat> P 
People build relationships on all kinds of foundations. We don't have to even talk about that. We know they're not working. What types of foundations should they be building on? Christ as the very centerpiece. Understand God's purposes for marriage. I put that as a foundational issue because it's foundational in Scripture. It's Genesis, the no-brainer of the morning. It's Genesis 1 and 2. So it's as about as foundational as you can get, is what did God intend marriage to be? Our culture's trying to make marriage be things God never intended it to be. Like you're, you're finding your soulmate who's going to be your rock and your fortress in your life. That just isn't going to work. Um, and then you have to understand the idea of the heart. And if you hang around biblical counseling much, <clears throat> you know we talk about the heart a lot. Because Scripture talks about the heart a lot. Over a thousand times, Scripture talks about the heart. So here's just one key verse. You have it in your notes, the reference. Actually, I didn't include it in your notes, but write this one in your notes. Proverbs 4.23. This applies directly to choices in marriage. Guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. Does the young woman who's yearning for a relationship with a young man need Proverbs 4.23? She needs a reality check on you. Please guard your heart. Now that verse is not, can't interpret that verse of I have to protect my heart from people who are going to hurt me. That's not what that means. In the book of Proverbs, guarding your heart is you guard your heart from your own sinful impulses. Your heart in the Bible, in Proverbs, is a heart that has tendencies. It has values. Um, it's used synonymously in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. The Lord says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. That tells me that the word heart and treasure are synonymous ideas, biblically. My heart is my treasure. So, when my heart, my inner person, heart, in whether you're looking at the Hebrew word or you're looking at the Greek word, so lave in the Old Testament, cardia in the New Testament, like electrocardiogram, cardiology, etc. I joke with my students and tell them I'm, I want to teach them to be cardiologists. Um, so I want to teach you to be a bibliocardiologist. I've got to be aware of my value system, my treasures. Why are you treasuring that other person? What is the value you're seeing? in that person. Our culture says things like, let your heart be your guide. Once you start to understand what the Bible has to say about heart, you go, that is the stupidest <laughs> advice that our culture could give anybody. Let your heart be true to your heart. What? No, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. So I want to help young people understand what's going on in the heart the word in Genesis chapter 2 <clears throat> for Eve was attracted to the fruit. It was a delight to her eyes. Is the same word that's translated later on in um, the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel as attraction. So there we are. Why are you attracted to this person? That takes hard work to try to get people to really think through because especially if they're already in relationship, they don't want to think through 
why they're attracted to the person. So shouldn't we be teaching young people even before the romantic, you know, all the romantic juices are flowing, start catching them before to understand, don't be naive about your inner person, be tuned into your inner person, and why are you even attracted to that person? Just because something looks good doesn't mean it's good for you. We're all suffering the consequences of Genesis 3 because of something looking good and them taking the bait, as James chapter 1 would, would talk about. So uh, there's all kinds of questions. Uh, I give my students 14 heart questions to help them understand their inner person and why to just to be more tuned in to attractions. Uh, the, the heart, if you want to define heart biblically, it's, uh, so I already defined it with its treasure, value, but it's your mind, will, and emotions is the heart. It's your inner person. So your mind, will, and emotions. So your thought, in other words, your thought life reveals your heart, your decision making reveals your heart, your will, and your emotions reveal your heart. Does that sound romantic? You're in a romantic relationship, your emotions are definitely involved, your decision-making is definitely involved, and your mind is definitely involved. So your whole inner person is active when it comes to romantic relationships. I want to teach young people to have a heart that is just um, influenced by the Holy Spirit's work of using biblical principles to not get caught off guard by my inner person and the way it's leading me uh, in relationships. Now, th that's the foundation. When we come back for part two, I'm going to build the first story. Of Now, after we lay the foundation, what are the first story issues that you need to work with uh, with young people? What kind of questions does this raise so far? I'm building a house is what we're, we're headed toward. And I want to get people building the house earlier, not thinking that the day of marriage, all of a sudden, now you're ready to build the house. That's not working. Questions so far? What doesn't seem clear? Uh, pushback? Yes? I don't have them. I have them on a flash drive. I should have included that. I wasn't thinking in that much detail. But I, if you send me an email, I'd be happy to send them to you. ebaker at masters.edu. Any question you ask about mind, will, or emotions is a heart question. So, um, questions about the person's thought life. What do you think about the person? What do you think about life? What I'm looking for is things like, um, I boil it down to terms like people-pleasing, comfort-loving, control. The people value things like, I'm a people-pleaser. Well. They need to, she, he needs to understand, if I'm a people pleaser, how's that going to influence my relationships? We live out of our heart. I'm a control freak. Well, how's that going to influence your understanding of roles? So I'm trying to help my young people. I make all my college students do a, I call it a marriage preparation project. And they have to work through these heart themes of how their own heart is going to influence their relationships with other people. Yes? Well, in, yeah, um, and, and just so we're all clear, guarding your heart is not I'm protecting myself from someone hurting me. 
it's I am tuned into my, I have a sin nature, and so I'm tuned into my own propensities. And so any way you can be tuned into your own propensities, so that has to do with discipline thinking. Um, I'm thankful that I was taught the idea of the heart from uh, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia because it's helped me make, so heart is mind, will, and emotions. It's helped me be more tuned into why do I make the decisions that I do. So it's my will. Am I making, am I wanting to resign from this church, for example, because I'm a comfort lover and I just don't want conflict, or, and I'm wanting to see it as God's will for my life, or is it just my comfort loving tendency? So practical ways of doing it would be your thought life of being tuned in to your inner person with its wants and desires, uh, being more heart aware yourself, so answering these 14 heart questions. Uh, you can come up with your own heart questions, even if you don't write me the email and get my handout. It's ask yourself questions about your thought life, your decision making, your emotions, and what do those three together tell you about the patterns in your inner person? Yes, sir. Would you equate that with the sin that besets you in Hebrews 12.1 kind of thing? Understanding what that besetting sin or sins are. I can see it definitely tying together. I don't know if that's what the writer of Hebrews had in mind, but it definitely ties together that we all have sins that we seem to have propensities toward, tendencies toward. So once you become more heart aware, uh, you know the sins that tend to sidetrack you. Copyright 2014, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.